Howdy! We love that you're listening to our show, and we just want to say a big thank you to everyone who's tuning in and spreading the word. And if you're listening to it when the show drops, right now, the Texas State Fair is going on in Dallas. So if you happen to go, enjoy yourself, have a corn dog, have a bunch of fried food, see the butter sculpture, and ride the the big you know Ferris wheel thing. Woo! But also... <laughs> Maybe you make a new friend and say, hey, you should go to brainstable.com and check out Come and Take It, the premier Texas history podcast. Uh, we thank you for telling a friend and letting people know about what we do. So, uh, you know, have fun. Don't eat too much. And uh, be safe on those rides. And without further ado, here's the show. Come on, boys. We're having margaritas in the sand. Howdy! You're listening to Come and Take It, a talk show about Texas by Texans, where three friends born and raised in the Lone Star State share our views on the history, culture, and just what it means to be Texan. I'm Mike Zolkowski. I'm Sean McIver. And I'm Scott Elfstrom. From its earliest days as a tiny fleet harassing Santa Ana supply ships during the Texas Revolution, through its ragtag days in service of the New Republic, the Texas Navy had a fractious, controversial, and fascinating history. It suffered through lack of funds, obsolete technology, and frankly questionable behavior by its commanders. But it was also responsible for some of the most unlikely victories in the annals of naval history. This week, part one of the amazing story of the Texas Navy. But first, what's your favorite song with Texas in the title? Now, I may have mentioned it before, uh, I don't remember, but it's is and always will be my favorite song with Texas in the title, and that's Lyle Lovett's That's Right, You're Not From Texas. It is a great song. It sums it all up for me. It's a great song. Mm -hmm. Uh, And he is a Texan, so you got two checks there. I'm going to throw out uh, a song called Leaving Texas by Jerry Jeff Walker. And it's just a really beautiful song, and when I first started traveling internationally... Uh, anytime I'd get close to the Texas border, I'd pop in the best of Jerry Jeff Walker, and I'd cue that song up right about the time I was crossing uh, out of the state. And it's a beautiful song. So, Leaving Texas by Jerry Jeff Walker. Check it out on iTunes or your favorite streaming service. Well, uh, although I love Wasp Blind in Texas, my favorite song with the word Texas in it is the song Texas. A 1989 song by Chris Ray, uh, and uh, it's it's probably most famous if you've been to the ballpark in Arlington to a Rangers game. It is the background music that's played at the beginning of the uh, the game. Uh, it's, it's got a great line. It's got big roads. You know, iron- ironically, song. I actually stumbled across that on YouTube uh, maybe a <laughs> month or two ago, and it is a super dated video. So, oh, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is. 1989. <laughs> It was a different time, kids. Ask probably, your mom. Probably wasn't directed by David Fincher. <laughs> we all know from way back in our second episode that the battleship Texas, a veteran of both world wars and now on permanent display at the San Jacinto Monument, serves as the flagship of the Texas Navy, an honorary designation in recognition of its service to our country. 
But what most people don't know is that, in fact, there really was a Texas Navy, which existed through the 1830s and 40s. In fact, there were two different fleets during this period, one which fought in the Revolution and a second one which served the Republic. In many ways, Texas's naval tradition predates even the Revolution. A major component of the rising conflict between Santa Ana's government and the Texian colonists was the increasingly aggressive actions taken by the Mexican Navy to collect taxes, stop immigration, and intercept slave trading by American merchant ships along the Texas coast. Ships were seized, and both legal and illegal property was confiscated by Mexican ships, and soon the Texans had had enough. In September 1835, the steamer Laura was towing the armed merchant ship San Felipe into the Brazoria Harbor. San Felipe was carrying Stephen F. Austin back from the United States after he'd been in prison in Mexico, as well as a large shipment of munitions, and it was approached by the Mexican revenue cutter Correo de Mexico. The confrontation soon turned into a battle, and the Correo was captured after a bloody fight. It was one of the many incidents that drove Santa Ana to take an ever harder line with the rebellious Texians. The San Felipe herself may be seen as the first ship of the Texas Navy, and after war broke out in earnest that October, she was involved in several other actions before being disabled in November. More importantly, she showed the Texans just how critical it was to protect the coastline from invasion and to ensure that the supply lines from the United States stayed open. Privateers were authorized to prey on Mexican shipping in the Gulf of Mexico, but they could and would do nothing to defend the coast. When the San Felipe was disabled, the provisional government knew it needed to do something to fill the gap. On November 25, 1835, the General Council authorized the purchase of four small vessels to be armed and operate as a squadron out of Texas ports. Thus, the official Texas Navy was born. The first ship purchased was the small ship William Roberts, which had been privately operated out of Matagorda Bay as a sort of replacement for the San Felipe. It even had San Felipe's guns and former captain. In January 1836, the Texas government purchased the ship and renamed her Liberty. Shortly afterwards, they purchased a larger former merchant ship from New Orleans, which they renamed Invincible. Invincible was a much more powerfully armed ship than the smaller Liberty. The third ship purchase was a former United States revenue cutter named the USS Ingham. It had been sold to the Texas rebels. Now, interestingly, the Ingham had briefly dueled with the Mexican sooner Montezuma when the Mexican ship mistakenly attacked the revenue cutter in June 18, 1835, well before the Texas Revolution formally began. The captain of the Ingham, Ezekiel Jones, was commended for his action by the American press, including the New Orleans Bee, which wrote, quote, His prompt and efficient action in the affair of the Montezuma has taught a neighboring state a valuable lesson of respect for our flag. And concerning the Ingham, the paper wrote, quote, The vessel is entitled to bear the best motto for a military public servant. Semper Paratus. Semper Paratus, or always ready, later became the motto of the U.S. Coast Guard, the successor service to the Revenue Cutter Service. The last ship purchased was the most powerful ship of all, the 10-gun Brutus, though it wouldn't arrive in Texas waters until February. Her first captain was William Hurd, who'd previously commanded San Felipe and William Roberts as a privateer. Initially, the ships operated independently, much like the privateers, seizing Mexican shipping in the Gulf. But once Santa Ana's, in- 
But once Santa Ana's forces invaded Texas, the ships began to operate as a squadron and under the command of their first commandant, Charles Hawkins. Hawkins was a veteran of the United States Navy and had even served as a ship captain in the early Mexican Navy. He'd spent a few years as a riverboat captain before getting caught up in the revolts against Santa Ana. In January of 1836, he found himself in Texas, and upon recommendation of Sam Houston, the provisional government recruited him to equip the independents for combat. He did so, footing the cost of the bill when the government balked at his lavish expenses. He operated without a commission until March when he was finally named senior captain of what was now the Texas Navy, thus earning the right to be referred to as Commodore. He was also autocratic, arrogant, and a very harsh disciplinarian who managed to make enemies of all the other captains in the squadron. Yeah, he even managed to run all of the other captains out of commission. <laughs> so overall, during the first four months of 1836, the squadron was pretty effective. Liberty captured the Pelicano, a Mexican ship which was loaded with gunpowder in March 1836. Invincible battled and destroyed the Montezuma, which was now renamed the Bravo, in early April 1836. She also seized the American merchant ship Pocket, which was nearby and it had witnessed the battle with the Bravo. Pocket was actually carrying food, supplies, and munitions to Santa Ana's army, as well as messages outlining Santa Ana's plans to capture Texas's remaining ports. The supplies from Pocket, as well as from the earlier capture of Pelicano, were all put to good use by Sam Houston's army at San Jacinto. After the Battle of San Jacinto, while the fighting on land had ended, it didn't really stop for the Navy. Initially, the ships of the Texas Navy were involved in diplomatic missions, such as escorting Sam Houston to New Orleans, where he could get his wounds treated, or carrying commissioners to the U.S. to negotiate recognition for the new republic. While in New Orleans, Liberty was impounded by the American Navy over repair bills from during the Revolution and was eventually sold off to pay that debt. In the summer of 1836, the Mexican government repudiated the Treaty of Velasco and combat, at least at sea, began once more. Both sides seized ships off of Texas waters. From July to September, all three ships in the Texas Navy blockaded Matamoros in Mexico, but the blockade ended when Invincible and Brutus sailed off to New York City for repairs. Of course, they couldn't pay for the repairs and escaped from the harbor, just barely avoiding Liberty's fate. Independence had sailed for New Orleans to get repairs, where Commodore Hawkins contracted smallpox and died. He was succeeded as commander of the Texas Navy by a former merchant captain named Henry Livingston Thompson. In 1837, the naval crisis in the Gulf of Mexico became so acute that U.S. Navy ships were drawn into the fighting with Mexico. By the spring of 1837, the Mexican Navy got serious and sent a fairly powerful squadron to blockade Galveston Bay. On April 17th, the Independents became trapped at the mouth of the Brazos River by two larger Mexican ships, Vincedor del Alamo and Libertador. After a lopsided battle fought before a crowd of spectators on the riverbank, including Secretary of the Navy Samuel Rhodes Fisher, the Independence surrendered to the Mexican ships. She would later be recommissioned in the Mexican Navy as La Independencia. Sadly, it would not be the last defeat the Texas Navy suffered. In June 1837, believing that Texas faced the possibility of seaborne invasion by Mexican forces and determined to avenge Independence's loss, 
Commodore Thompson and Secretary Fisher came up with a plan to take the naval war to Mexico. Despite not having orders from President Houston to do so, Invincible and Brutus set out into the Gulf of Mexico in search of Mexican shipping. Then they split up. Invincible headed south towards Yucatan and Brutus headed towards Cuba. They rejoined at Cozumel Island, where they did what most Texas vacationers do today. They rested, recovered, enjoyed all-inclusive resorts, took in the Maya ruins, they did some snorkelings. They claimed the islands for Texas, you know, the usual stuff that Texas tourists do today. (laughs) They actually had... Now, there actually was some validity to Thompson and Fisher's actions. Yucatan was in rebellion at the time, and Texas strongly supported their fellow breakaway state. The squadron then proceeded to Yucatan, where the reception wasn't quite as warm as it was on Cozumel. Support for the revolutionary government hadn't extended to all parts of the peninsula, it seemed. More seriously, though, was the seizure of a large British merchant vessel named the Eliza Russell, which was headed to the Yucatan port of Sisal. This resulted in a huge diplomatic dispute with Great Britain, one of the few countries that was considering recognition of Texas as an independent nation. Before Houston could settle the British consul down, the Royal Navy actually issued orders to treat all Texan ships as pirates, and the government had to pay $4,000, which it didn't really have, to the British in compensation. In the end, this cruise through the Gulf of Mexico was only a modest success that resulted in way more trouble than it was worth. The danger of invasion was temporarily averted, but there was little other reward in the action. When the fleet finally returned... The Mexican Navy followed them. Brutus and Invincible arrived off Galveston Island on August 26. Brutus was towed across the tide bar into the safety of the bay, but Invincible had anchored off the bar overnight. The next morning, the larger Mexican warships, Iturbide and Libertador, sailed into sight. Thompson bravely sailed out and Invincible to engage them, but Brutus failed to clear the bar and sheared off her rudder. Invincible herself fought well until she too ran aground and was caught in a crossfire. The damaged Mexican ships broke off the battle, but Invincible was a wreck. A few weeks later, a major hurricane destroyed Brutus and most of the other ships at harbor in Galveston. The Texas Navy was non-existent. Wiped off the map. Yeah. In October, with no ships left and his diplomatic efforts with Europe and the U.S. on the verge of collapse as a result of the Gulf Cruise, Houston fired Fisher from his post, although the Senate reinstated him a few days later. They then put him on trial and late November voted to remove him again. Thompson was dismissed from the Navy but died on November 1837 before he could be put on trial. Still, the story of the Texas Navy wasn't done. For two years, while the world dealt with the economic meltdown of the Panic of 1837, and Mexico dealt with conflict from France as well as interminable political upheaval within its own borders, there was peace and no real need for a navy. But in 1839, tension between Texas and Mexico began to increase once more, and the Republic's Congress again authorized the commission of a new fleet to defend the Texas coast and continue the fight with Mexico on the high seas. But that's a story for another time. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we always talk about the flagship of the Texas Navy being the battleship Texas. But, you know, there really was a Texas Navy. And like you said, it really did have a significant role to play in the in the revolution and then both before and after. 
Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, right. the two big things jump out at me at this story that I didn't know before we we talked about just this part of it. Um, the first is the idea of the idea of the Semperparatus and the, you know, the motto of the Coast Guard and, and Texas, con- Texas Navy's contribution to m- the modern Coast Guard. Yeah, right. Well, the Texas Revolution's contribution, yeah. I'm just going to put everything so, in yeah. the Texas rules can contribute box. Yeah, exactly. Uh, well, one more, ch- one more chart. Well, I had for a Texas. former boss who was, uh, you know, a, a Coast Guardsman, and you know, that, it's a big deal, like that. Uh, always ready, and that's a, you know, it's a big thing. So, yep. shout out to mm-hmm. any of uh, you Coast Guard guys that are out there listening. But uh, the other thing that I think is interesting is there's a, a bit of a myth around the bad luck of renaming boats. And there's all kinds of weird mm. like myths and stuff involved. Like, of, well, if you're going to rename a boat, you need to, you know, destroy anything that has the old boat's name, and then you have to have an official ceremony to appease the gods of the sea, and you shouldn't reveal a boat's name until <laughs> you're actually ready to launch it. Like, so if you have it on the transom, you should cover it with a sheet until the boat is totally ready. And there's all this bad luck that goes with it. And then you get to the second half of the story, you realize, like, you know, there was kind of bad luck with renaming these boats. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, so, you know, Texas, similar to the United States, you know, the United States, when the revolution start started in 1775, they had a small fleet of little ships that, that, were, that were raiders and just generally, you know, tried to fight the most powerful Navy in the world uh, at the time. And so similar things happened in Texas. And Mexico's Navy wasn't quite as powerful. Uh, and they didn't really commit their forces to fighting the Texans that much, but... I just think it's interesting that that for all the good things that it did, so they did help help win the Battle of San Jacinto. Um, they did make sure supplies kept coming to Texas. They also did some boneheaded things. I mean, <laughs> taking taking the American ship pocket was a bad decision. It, it actually did cause trouble in the the opponents of Texas coming, you know, being supported and and coming into the United States. Use that as an example that these are people that don't know the rule of law. And the British thing just totally, that was just a dumb thing to do. Yeah. <laughs> Completely. But, but again, you got, you got two characters. Thompson's an interesting character. They don't really know his history before. They know he was kind of a riverboat captain or a merchant captain, but that's all they really know about him. Uh, and he became the commander of the Texas fleet. And then uh, before him, Hawkins was just one of those characters in Texas history. That's like, he really stands out. He's larger than life. And, not always in a good way. Or if he's related to Taylor Hawkins. I don't know. Oh, yeah. Foo, give a little love to the Foo Fighters. Here's the thing I kind of wonder about this stuff, and I know that we're going to cover in the next episode a little bit more about the, the second later Texas Navy and the Zavala and all that kind of stuff. But everybody who participated in the Texas Revolution and in the early days of the Republic are lauded and are known to be important and why does this sort of get shuffled off to the dustbin for you know texas history in schools why isn't there more of more love for the actual texas navy historically i don't know maybe it's because this this first navy well it's it had some successes it ultimately failed and it, it had kind of a there was kind of an ignominious nature to it in that they skipped out on their bill, their repair bills, and they operated without orders, and they weren't easily seen, readily seen. So I, I think that's part of it. Um, the interesting thing is that that the 
the sailors of the Navy actually, you know, tried to get veterans benefits of the revolution and they were denied a lot of benefits. Uh, and some of it was because Houston was still angry about <laughs> uh, them going off without orders. But um, yeah, so they, they actually were denied a lot of the benefits that that first Texas Navy that, that other veterans of San Jacinto and, and everything got, they weren't able to get the land that they wanted. So there was, there was, there was a lot of controversy. Well, from the to story, that. they seem to be at times one notch above pirates. And <laughs> basically like, I'm going to start a Navy. I don't have any charter. I basically am a literal pirate just sailing around under mm-hmm. no flag of war, just doing my own thing until Sam Houston clears the paperwork for me. Um, well, well, and the captain of the captain of Liberty, uh, who had been the captain of San Felipe, actually was accused of piracy because he was operating without a commission. Yeah, and so this is the thing, and and also you know if you like if you like history, you know you can always check out. There's a guy named uh, Craig Buddy. He's one of the history podcasters. He does the History of Pirates podcast. Uh, so I think mm-hmm. our, our some of our Texas fellows would fit the bill pretty well there. But I I do wonder, you know what. They, you know, they had this role of privateer most of the time, and they just didn't seem. I just wish there was a really amazing victory that we had, you know, just to really hang Texas Navy could hang their hat on. And you know, I mean, they had some some small stuff, but it would, you know, they sank the ship with Santa Ana and all of his men. The end. Mm-hmm. You know, it would have been nice to have if they well, been able I mean- to put a button on it that way. Yeah, and and the victory over Pelicano and and the invincible ba- uh, defeating Montezuma. Montezuma, that ship or Bravo at the time, was the primary threat to the Texas coast at, during the revolution. So, so destroying that ship really was a major victory within the time of the revolution. It's it's after the war. And that's the other. Th- I think that's the other thing is that they kept fighting after the quote unquote the war was over, and so there's something unseemly about that. It kind of belies the victory and maybe it it decreases the victory so to speak because they did they were defeated so you know yeah it, it sends you know san jacinto is a nice bookend right and it doesn't we've we found that it doesn't always tell the full story that there was still conflict with mexico for many years afterwards um but you know hey maybe uh <laughs> maybe the riders of texas rising can set it in, in the texas navy instead. yeah i'm sure they have the budget for a Large-scale naval battle. <laughs> I, I can only yes. imagine the uh, the Wonderland that they will depict on Cozumel. <laughs> yeah. Come on, boys. We're having margaritas in the sand. <laughs> yeah, you know. Well, that's, that's the great story. That's the great. That's the surprising part about the Cozumel cruise is like, yeah, I could see them like going in there, taking all the stuff, you know, hey, we're, we're running, you know, we're going to capture all the supplies. They ran up the Texas flag and said, yep. "We're we're claiming Cozumel for Texas." So the next time I go down to down to down on a cruise, I'm going to walk into Cozumel and say, "I shouldn't have to show you my passport. This is Texas ground." <laughs> yeah, good luck with that. <laughs> uh, well, it's you know it's a cool story, and I, I think we just I think there's a romantic notion of the idea of a Texas right. Navy. But, uh, but uh, you know, it's nice to know that there really is some interesting history here uh, and stuff that you didn't well, learn in school. And so to, to give you a few little teasers for the next oh, episode, boy. that victory, that remarkable victory that you were looking for, you will see it in the next episode. Nice. I'm impatient. I want it now. 
All right. Uh, well, that's awesome. Uh, uh, what a great, what a great story. So, so to all of our friends in the Coast Guard, are are you familiar with where Simple Paradise came from? And it's connect, it's Texas oh, connection. So, take some time this week. Drop us a line. That wraps things up for today. You can find notes and links from today's show at brainstaple.com. We'd love to hear from you. So like and share us on Facebook, follow the show on Twitter at Texas Podcast, or go to brainstable.com and leave us some feedback. You can find our show and many other great history podcasts at historypodcasters.com. Why not follow us individually? I'm on Twitter at Mr. Java. I am Max Sean with two N's. And I am Scotticus. Ahoy there, sailor. We know you love the show. So do your duty, matey, and tell your friends. And leave a review on iTunes, because that really helps us out to find listeners just like you, sailor. If you love what we do, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash texaspodcast, where you can join the Texas Revolution and help support our show weekly. We hope you'll join us next time, and remember that even if you aren't from Texas, Texas wants you anyway. Thank you.